Thank you, Gaza. He didn't finish the sentence, he just said, give Paul Taylor a round. Sounds very generous, um, but I'll take the applause. Uh, that's nice too. Um, we, I lead the, the, the Kloof site of Olive Tree. Um, and if you're not aware, our church is a multi-site church. So although um, I, I don't attend this facility, we do attend the same church. Uh, our church has, has sites in North Coast and Kloof, and we're trusting the grace of God that we get to plant some other sites elsewhere in the city um, where we can establish communities that believe the gospel in practical, radical, relevant ways and make Durban better, right? That's what we're all trying to do. Uh, and I not only... Uh, feel kind of connected to you guys because we are the same church and because the staff of the other sites, we're all here every week, we're working together, um, planning together, sermon series, etc. Um, but also this uh, church, you guys um, had the grace to let me learn how to preach here, which when I look back on it, must have been an ordeal. Um, but, but I used to pastor the evening services, I used to be part of the Florida Road team, uh, and then, I don't know four or five years ago, uh, got to be part of the Cliff site. And Cliff sends you guys love, and, and our church loves this church. We, we're proud of you. We think you're doing an amazing job. I'm so chuffed about the building. I'm so chuffed about the fire that you guys are carrying in Durban. Um, and so you should just know that the Cliff celebrates you, and Cliff is going really well. That branch of Olive Tree uh, is, the, people are coming to faith and loving Jesus more, and amazing stuff is happening, and our butt God cards are, are also kind of goosebumpy, exciting like yours. It's the same God and the same mission, right? It's, it's all amazing. And I just wanted to tell you one thing that I'm still sort of buzzing about. We, um, this last term, have run a parenting course. Uh, I suppose in the same way that you might run an alpha course up there, uh, most people have children. They, they I don't know, it seemed easier to produce up there or something, but everyone <laughs> seems to have kids. Uh, and I don't know if it's different down here, but up there, people are going stir crazy. They don't know how to deal with kids. Parenting is quite tricky anyway. Um, and something strange has happened in the last few years, which is that even eight-year-olds are on Instagram. Have you noticed? Uh, and so parents are just freaking out about how to deal with social media in the digital age and the access and freedoms uh, that kids are growing up in now. And that's not something to be terrified of, right? People are designed for freedom. Freedom's not bad. Um, but because parents are terrified and wanting to protect their kids and seeing all kinds of dreadful stuff going on, they're controlling their kids, they're disengaging from their kids, they're stalking their kids, they're like, it's weird. So we, um, we had an event on Monday night. This is just where I'm trying to go with this to tell you. Um, we threw this event, put some experts on a panel, uh, and invited the neighborhood, and 100 parents turned up, uh, and we got to chat about social media and how to connect with your kids and love them and help them to be safe and help them to be wise and learn how to control themselves. And I was looking out during the course of the evening as I was just sort of answering the questions and pointing at people. Um, and just thought, if there are 100 parents here, that could be 150, 170 kids represented just here tonight, and we made a podcast out of it, which I would really recommend. Um, and I'm thinking about the hundreds of people that I know are starting to listen to that, and thinking about two, three, four, five hundred kids in our city, six, seven, eight hundred kids in our city who are going to grow up with parents who love them better than they otherwise would have loved them, and who are going to be able to enjoy freedom and avoid suffering that they might otherwise have ended up in as a result of some local church just trying to be helpful. Uh, and I'm really, just really excited about that kind of thing. So um, our church sends you love and we love you and it's going well there. Um, and, and because we're all in, kind of pointed in one direction, the point of the sermon series is to discuss what that direction is. Where are we going? Why are we going there? What will it look like when we get there? Um, and it is my privilege to end the series off talking about enjoying God. This is actually the most important one, which obviously is what I would say because I'm the one that gets to preach it. Um, but as far as sort of sequential 
thinking goes, if you were to apply that to the values of our church, enjoying God is what everything else flows out of. So this is a really cool note to end on. Um, And we're going to talk about your happiness. We're going to take your happiness very seriously for the next half an hour. And I don't think there's anything more responsible that you could do than to take your happiness very seriously. Because as mature as you like to pretend to be, you are motivated by your happiness more than anything else. No one can consistently choose what they believe deeply will make them unhappy. You may be better at delayed gratification than other people. You may find your happiness in being seen to be more spiritual than other people or more kind than other people or more self-sacrificing than other people. But if you're really honest about it, it's your desire for happiness that's making you do the things you do and avoid the things you avoid. And so this is essentially about human motivation. We need to understand human motivation because you may have noticed humans are doing some damage, aren't they? It's not a hugely inspiring moment in our history. And it's really important, before I mention some of this stuff, that we remember that while there is bad stuff going on, the beauty and good stuff is just as important to talk about. And if you surround yourself with all the outrage posters on Facebook, which Ross told you a few weeks ago, no no olive tree person is allowed to be anymore. Amen. Thank goodness for that. Um, But if you surround yourself with that stuff, you can get the impression that it's only bleak. Of course, there is bleakness and beauty at the same time. And the beauty, given how fragile and unlikely it is, is actually even more glorious that there is still wonderful stuff going on in our world. But it is a nerve-wracking time. I have just uh, discovered that I have a second child on the way who's going to be a girl. Um, And I'm pumped about that. And and yet, of course, that makes you immediately think, crumbs, I'm I'm, I'm going to bring this little girl child who I'm going to love so much into this world. What can I do to make this world a safer, nicer place for her to be? And you may be looking at the economic outlook or political trends overseas or whatever, the, you know, much more close to home stuff that's causing you stress or confusion or doubt. And it might sound like, well, then to just spend half an hour talking about happiness is like a waste of time. No, no, no. Changing the motivations of the human heart is the thing we're worried about. People don't march and campaign and post and freak out to try and have people try to modify their behavior a little bit. It doesn't work anyway. Have you ever been to a school reunion 10 years later? The people are the same, aren't they? (laughs) They don't change. Human beings can't change their hearts. We can't do it. We, We can maybe modify behavior a little bit, but the motivations of your heart, you are not in charge of. It is so difficult to control them, so difficult to change them. And yet when we look at a scary world, that's what we're hoping for. When we look inside ourselves and see scary stuff inside ourselves, that's what we're hoping for, that somehow, despite generations not being able to do this, that somehow we'd find a way to change the motivations of our hearts, that we start to want the right things and not want the wrong things and be nicer to one another. And so we're not just talking about surface level behavior modification, we're talking about the change of a human heart, the motivations that go on in there. And I'm here to tell you, human beings can't do it. And yet we desperately need to. And the amazing news is that God thinks he can. God thinks he can change the motivations of a human heart. God thinks he can change the things you want. That's incredibly hopeful news. If ever we needed that to go on, we need it right now. And that's what I'd like to preach about. I'd like to prove to you over the next 25 minutes now um, that your big desire in life to be happy and God's big desire in your life to be glorified are actually one and the same, are actually aligned. Let's just 
state God's agenda. He designed you for his glory. Sorry if that's new news for you. This actually is wonderful news, but it does take a bit of swallowing. The idea that you were essentially, you're a glorified ornament on someone else's mantelpiece. Your life is not for you. You're not the star of your story. And that should immediately start to, when you think about it, cause you great relief. It's quite stressful to be the star of your own story. No, you're part of someone else's story. Someone else is the star. You're designed for his glory. But God's desire to be glorified in creation and in you, and your desire to be happy and satisfied, are aligned, are not at war with one another, are not mutually exclusive. They're the same. This is outrageous to suggest. And Many churches and all religions I know of have been working quite hard to convince us this isn't the case. So I'm going to need to do some decent work if I'm going to prove this to you. But that's the statement, that the glory of God and the happiness and satisfaction of man are actually the same thing. Because of who he is, I mean, he doesn't have to be this way. He could be other ways. He could just force you to glorify him even though it was going to suck. But because of who he is and what he's like, your satisfaction and happiness and his glory are the same thing. And that's what we're going to try to prove. But as we start, I've heard the Bible described um, as the great instruction manual for life. Okay? And that's not dumb. That's not wrong. That's a reasonable thing to say. There are lots of instructions in there. And Jesus did say he was the way to a rich and satisfying life. And seems like a reasonable thing to suggest. But something kind of jarred with me when I heard that the first time, that the Bible is the great instruction manual for life. If you could just, you know, crack the code, if you could just obey these principles. And I've been wondering why it jarred a little bit. And here's the thing. I'm going to summarize what many of, if not most of the instructions in the Bible are actually telling you to do. And as you listen to them, I want you to realize the things God is asking you to do, you can't choose to do. You're told variously, to have joy, to fear certain things, to feel peace in certain circumstances, to have zeal about stuff, to have grief about other stuff, to desire certain things, to be tender-hearted towards certain people, to have brokenness and contrition when you think about your own state, and, and to be grateful for some stuff, to be horrified by other stuff. Are you getting the impression that these are not things you can choose? You can choose behavior modification. You can't choose what you hate, what you love, what you're grateful for, what you're horrified by. Can you? Seems difficult to do. Let me show you one amazing verse that is a cool example of this. And I think this should be a much better known verse than it is. Micah 6 verse 8. The prophet is describing what the good life looks like. This is a really handy verse if you're wondering what would God like people to be like. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. So far, so good. You can choose that. That's behavior modification. Here's where it starts to come off the rails. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Not to act justly and to be merciful. You could choose against your better instincts to be merciful to people that you'd much rather destroy and punish and exact vengeance on. You could go through the motions of doing mercy no, but God says you should love mercy. God says it should be something so deeply inside you that out of selfishness, you just want to show mercy to people because it's your favorite thing to do. You just want to show more and more mercy wherever you have an opportunity to repay bad with good because you just love to do it. How do you, how do you legislate that? Not only is this difficult because it's hard for me to love what I don't really love, it also poses quite odd moral problems because most fancy moral teachers would say that 
when you do something out of selfishness or self-interest, that diminishes the goodness of the act. Okay, but I know that all sounds a bit philosophical. So, little boy carrying the granny's groceries down the road. Good act, right? Little boy carrying the granny's groceries because he's intending to snake the chocolate out of the bag en route. Bad act. Even though it's the same act at that moment, the motivation matters, doesn't it? And if you're doing it for selfless reasons, it's supposed to be good. And if you're doing it for selfish reasons, it's supposed to be bad. If the little boy is carrying the shopping down the road because he wants to get the Cub Scout superhero uh, grocery-carrying Wolfpack badge, whatever, then even that diminishes the quality of the act a little bit, doesn't it? Because he's not doing it just out of kindness for the granny. He's doing it because he wants something out of it. Moral teachers would say that if you're doing good things for selfish reasons, that's not as good as doing good reasons just for purely unself-interested reasons. Eh, wrong, according to God. What his intention for you is, is that you would actually start to love to do the right stuff. That for selfish reasons, you're going to want to be kind to people. That for selfish reasons, you're going to want to show love to people who don't deserve it. For selfish reasons, you're going to do all sorts of good stuff. Just take a quick check. All the things you think God wants you to do in your life, the good stuff you're trying to do, the bad stuff you're trying to say no to, etc. What if God's intention, what if he was actually so bold as to think that he could change your wiring to the point where you longed to do that stuff? You didn't have to force yourself. You didn't have to reward yourself, guilt yourself, ask your mom to check on you. That it would just be what you wanted to do. That he'd prefer that than you going through the motions of doing good things with no self-interest. Now, if that's interesting, and let's just prove this once and for all before I move on to the next bit. So, making you want things you don't want. Your parents have proved this to you. If they've ever suggested in their wisdom that the person you like and are chatting to on Facebook or whatever is not the person they want you to like. Have you, do you know how this goes? Oh, have you seen so-and-so, how they treat their mom and how they, you know, maybe, maybe they're not the right one for you. And have you seen, you know, Bob and Marge's daughter, isn't she great, you know? And, and you know how this movie ends. If you're the person being told who you're supposed to like and to stop liking the person you do like, you like the person you're not supposed to like even more, and you are repulsed by the person that you're supposed to think is so great. Right? It can't be done. You can't force people to like what they don't like. So if this is how God wants you to feel about certain behaviors, what about how he wants you to feel about you? Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Later in that same psalm, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I struggled a little bit there because I'm used to the version that says, so my soul pants for you. So I felt like I was saying, so my pants soul for you, which isn't a thing. Um, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. When the Pharisees are asking Jesus, What's, what does God want from people? In Matthew 22, what's the great commandment? Jesus says, you'll love the Lord your God. Not you'll obey the Lord your God. Not you'll honor the Lord your God. Not you will worship the Lord your God. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul. That's the greatest commandment. God seems to think he is desirable and seems to think that you are supposed to long for him like crazy, that in fact you are wired to want him more than you want anything else. 
that if you're going to glorify him and obey him and worship him and all this other good stuff, it starts with you just deeply longing for him. That's what he seems to think is possible. I want to show you one amazing example of where he describes this. And as I just read this one verse, think to yourself how different this actually is. I mean, it's been sitting there on the page all along. But think how different this actually sounds to how most religion and most of us do church and faith. Psalm 37 verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I grew up, to be honest, thinking that, I mean, I didn't really know that verse. You kind of hear it floating around. But I thought that the principle really was obey the Lord and he will sort out the desires of your heart. Anyone in that camp? If I just hand over my will to him, if I just do enough churchy stuff, if I just say sorry often enough, if I just beat my brain with enough scripture or Christian songs or whatever, then, then eventually, hopefully, someday, God will take this wicked, deceitful heart of mine and panel beat it into shape. And it'll stop desiring the things it desires and start desiring some good stuff. Or maybe the desires will just go a bit quieter so that I don't live out of desire, I live out of devotion or something spiritual. Anyone from that background? Others of you might come from a modification of that, which seems a little better, but is actually still blasphemous, which is to say that that verse is saying, well, do, do, do diligence by God, tick the box, like doff your cap, do what you're supposed to, and then as a reward, he will give you the desires of your heart. Sound familiar? Not immediately a bad thing to say, but think about what that implies. God, I'm gonna use you as a means to the other things that I actually love more. Asking God to get you the things you want and then thanking him for them when you get them is not worship. It's still idolatry if you love those things more than you love God. And this shouldn't sound like some heavy. God is saying, I'm the thing you want. Delight yourself in me. I am better than that other stuff. Don't ask the ultimate to be a root to the lesser. That's daft. I'm the thing your soul was designed to crave. Don't begrudgingly turn up and think, well, you've got to go through the motions with me so that you can get the stuff you really like. You haven't understood yourself at all. Let me give you an example in human terms. Um, so due to the miracle of Facebook, some guy remembers his anniversary. Okay. In time. That's the key. And uh, so he's heading home from work. And uh, he wants to set the tone, he wants to do the right thing, he doesn't want to get into trouble. Um, it's a big motivator for a lot of what husbands do. Um, and so on the route home, he goes to Blockbusters. Blockbusters are still a place, uh, they're clinging on to existence. Um, and he, he rents the box set of Downton Abbey. Because he doesn't want to search for it on Netflix and then have Netflix recommend that kind of stuff to him. So he just gets the box set. Um, and then pulls out the, the all bloke superpower, the, packet of chuckles. Okay. So he's got the box set of Downton Abbey, he's got the packet of chuckles, he gets some roses from the engine on his way home. Gets home, knocks on the door. Who knocks on the door, right? Knocks on the door. His wife comes to the door, she kind of thinks something's going on, opens the door, um, and says to him, why have you done this? What, what are you doing? Uh, and I'm going to give you two versions of the answer. So in uh, option number one, he says, well, it's our anniversary. Um, and you've been a good wife. And so I just felt it was my duty to sacrifice any number of other things I would much rather have been doing and spending this money on. 
And as a, as a sign of honor to you, I'm going to give you my time and attention. Okay, I can tell by your reaction, well done, you've noticed that's probably not the right answer, but let's just leave that as option number one for now, okay? As an act of duty to you, to honor you, I'm gonna, you know, inflict you on myself for the next two hours, okay? <laughs> right. Option number two, Roses, Chuckles, Downton Abbey, knock at the door, why have you done this? Nothing would make me happier than to spend the rest of today giving you joy. That, yeah, okay. Better. Okay, now would it make any sense for the wife to respond in option two? Nothing would make you happier? You selfish git, this has got nothing to do with your happiness. This is my day, you're supposed to make me happy. Oh, so you wanna beat with me and it's nice for you. Or in option one for her to go, hmm, I see this is costing you a lot. I really appreciate that. I feel really great about the fact that you are doing this thing that is so difficult for you. Okay. <laughs> Clearly, that makes no sense at all. Clearly, it honors the wife more. It glorifies her more that he wants to be with her, that he enjoys being around her, that it gives him satisfaction to give her joy. Surely that dignifies who she is and what she's about much more than just, well, I'm going through the motions and you really ought to thank me because this sucks for me. Okay, now take what seems so totally obvious in human relationships and apply it to the way we treat God in spite of psalms like the ones I've read to you. Well, I'm gonna drag myself to this praise and prayer meeting. Who really wants to pray and sing Christian karaoke for an hour and a half on a weeknight? I'm gonna get myself there because you know I'm supposed to. You know, this is the ultimate bag of chuckles, God. You better be so grateful. <laughs> well, you know, I'm gonna read my Bible because someone once said, read your Bible, pray every day, and I'd rather be reading Shakespeare, and I hate Shakespeare, but like, uh, well, I guess I'm supposed to do this. Well, cleanse my mind somehow by reading the Bible. It's boring. God, you really, you know, you really ought to appreciate just how much this is costing me. As if that glorifies God. That doesn't glorify God. That maligns his character. That, that's dreadful. That's making it seem like he is awful to be around and you have to suffer through it for some heaven points. When he is saying, you were created. Before there was anything, there was me. He is the magnificent person behind of all the universe. Not some force, not some, some substance, not some element, not some mathematical equation. A person, a heart was behind everything. He created you. Everything was made for him and through him. You live and move and have your being in him. You were designed to be satisfied only and ultimately in him. He is more desirable than anything else. And he thinks the kindest thing he can do is say to you, look at me. Delight yourself in me. This is where you'll get the desires of your heart to met. Take your pleasure more seriously than to stop short at, well, I'll go on adventures or I'll, you know, take pretty pictures, or I'll drink lots of dope, or I'll, you know, this makes me happy, getting people to like me, or make lots of money, like, be more of a hedonist than that. Stop being so irresponsible with your happiness to, be, to, to stop there. Because you actually know that stuff doesn't satisfy long term. You already do. But you keep choosing it because you choose your happiness. Fair enough, all humans do. So just take your happiness more seriously. You were designed to be satisfied in me, says your father. And I want to. And yet you drag your feet into my presence thinking I'm supposed to be grateful that you've turned up here unwillingly, thinking that somehow glorifies me. And you do acts of service for God 
Your relationship with God is not about doing stuff for God. You're not his benefactor. You go to him because you couldn't bear to be anywhere else. Your relationship with God is not even, and this is good, but it's not even about going to him to be healed. This is not drug-seeking behavior. You're not going to God for other stuff you want. He, in and of himself, is enough. Okay, now, what this, um, what this brings us to, unfortunately, is the problem of the moth. Okay, that will make sense in a second. So moths have a great desire for flames, even though they kill them. It's a problem for moths. No moth has got close to the flame and gone like, whoa, this is a bad idea. Why do they all tell me at moth school that this was a great idea? This is a terrible idea. And go back and tell all his mates, don't go to the flame, it's bad for you. No moth has ever done that. The thing they long for is dangerous for them. Human beings, I hope you're starting to get the impression, whether you feel it yet or not, we're designed to be satisfied in God alone. And yet, because, I mean, one of the things that makes him so desirable is that he is holy, he's blameless. He's never done a single thing wrong. He can't. He is totally powerful, totally just, totally beautiful, unsullied. We're not, if you've noticed. Not only were we designed for his glory and to obey and worship him with every breath and we don't, we're also designed to look like him in his holiness and we don't, which means that anyone ever in the Bible who's wanted to be near to God has had God go, look, just be careful because if you come too close, my holiness will kill you. If you see my face, the thing your heart is longing to see, the eyes of your father, you were designed to stare in his face. If you see it, you will surely die. We are moths. Here's the flame. The thing we long for, we can't get to. And even his people in the Old Testament have to go through a process of sacrifices and priests and temple worship to get anywhere near him. But he's deeply dangerous to human beings. And this is where we come into the majestic, incredible, most amazing reason to enjoy God. This is where, if this is new for you, the enjoyment of God can start. In John 1, John chapter 4, verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. He came to this planet full of rebellious, not glory-giving, wretched moths, And the flame himself allowed himself to be snuffed out by us. He allowed us to mutilate and abuse him for the sins we should have been punished for. And in doing that and rising from the dead for you, defeating death for you, you now get to go straight into the presence of God and bask in the light and warm yourself by the flame and not be hurt by it. God no longer holds any threat for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. This is just unbelievable, which means every other good and wonderful and enjoyable thing about God can come later, the first thing you need to know is that he saved you and he's given you access to himself even if you never do another good thing in your life. The prophet Habakkuk, um, which some people wanna sort of say bless you after you say his name, um, says this in chapter three, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Economic depression, bad scenario, circumstances suck. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The fact that Jesus chose you, came for you, saved you, and by the way, did that for his joy, just like you're supposed to do every good thing 
for joy, for the joy that was set before him, for the pleasure you would give him, he chose to come and save you. The fact that he came for you and died for you and has given you access to the presence of your father means you could work in a North Korean toothpaste tube factory putting lids on for the rest of your life and God seems to think you could still enjoy yourself. You could still find enough satisfaction in his presence that all other circumstances can fall away. And this isn't some heavy moral thing. This is a dare. This is a joy dare from God. All that other stuff, you actually don't need. I am all you need. I dare you to take your happiness more seriously. Now, how do you start this journey. It's all very well for me to just stand up here going, he's enjoyable, he's enjoyable, he's enjoyable. Uh, and you know, some people in the room are like, yes, he's enjoyable. And others are like, oh, well, I don't know about that. I don't know that I really do find him enjoyable yet. This all makes sense, I suppose. But how do you actually go about enjoying something more that you don't yet really enjoy? Good question. Glad you asked. So some time ago, when I lived with someone rich enough to have DSTV, um, I remember Supersport wanted me to enjoy some things I don't normally enjoy, out of their generosity and kindness. They wanted me to watch other sport that they make money from. And um, they, they had this line, and here's the amazing idea. The line is, the more you know, the better it gets. And they would tell you stuff about curling or dumb sports that you don't really normally care about. And the characters involved and the storylines and the team that's on the up and is going to take on the giants and the tactics that you didn't know about before. And lo and behold, the more you start to understand what's going on behind, the more it's like, when's curling on again? I want to watch it. Um, the same applies to music, not just sports. If you decide that you want to take your enjoyment of music more seriously than to just let Roger Good tell you what to listen to, then you will begin a process of figuring out the genre you're interested in. Is it classical music? Is it old-time jazz or rock and roll or whatever? And you're going to learn about the people involved and who recorded what with who, what collaborations in what studio, on what street in London. And you're going to suddenly be spending hours in old sort of dusty shops getting vinyl records and you're gonna become an absolute nerd about this thing. You're gonna put a huge amount of effort into it, not because you're supposed to, not because you just wanna know more stuff, not because you haven't got anything better to do, but because you expect that the more you know, the better it will get. The more you understand, the more you'll enjoy it. And this is true of people as well, isn't it? Meet someone and everyone else says they're great and you're like, well, they haven't told their face. And then you get to know them, spend time, not just out of charity, not just because you're supposed to, but because you believe, as I know this person better, as I understand what's going on with them, I will enjoy them more. It's a kind of holy, sanctified version of selfishness. <laughs> I'm gonna enjoy you more if I understand you more. I'm gonna enjoy the sport more if I understand it more. I'm waiting to decide next Saturday if I'm gonna be interested in rugby or not. Um, for the next little while. I really don't, I mean, I'm a football person, not a rugby person, but it's like, if I'm gonna get into the spirit of it, I'm probably gonna enjoy the next few months more if I understand what Sia and his friends are trying to achieve for the next few months. And the more you know, the better you'll get. The better it will get for you, sorry. The, the better it will be for you, the more you'll enjoy it. So friends, when you go to your Bible and you wanna see what God is like, when you hang out with other Christians or you come to events where you get in a sense of what he's doing, you're not going through the motions that he's supposed to thank you for it. You're trying to understand more of who this deeply enjoyable person is in the full expectation that if he is as desirable as he says he is, the more I know about him, the more I'm gonna to long to know even more. And you're gonna be putting effort into it in the same way that a connoisseur puts effort into understanding why this wine or this painting or this music is better than that and what. But that effort's gonna be joy. It's not gonna be legalism, it's not gonna be religion. 
It's going to be hedonism. It's going to be you taking your happiness seriously. Here's the final thing. Here's the, the last thing that I'm just really keen to... Here's what helps us enjoy God more. See, those lesser pleasures, the other stuff that we use unsuccessfully to try and satisfy ourselves instead of going to Him. And you can, in your own mind, probably figure out what those things have been for you. Reputation, whatever it's been. Success, approval of others. That other stuff even the good stuff, when you make it the ultimate thing that you're trying to be satisfied by, has a corrosive and addictive effect on you. It does, you know it does. Another way to say that is, it spoils your appetite. It spoils your appetite. It's like, okay, I've heard that God is the three-course meal, but I just need another packet of flings. And like, of course you're not gonna enjoy him when you're filling your life with this junk food that you know doesn't do a good enough job, but you also know makes you unhealthy, ruins your taste for the right stuff, kind of does you damage. And this is no proof that God is not desirable if after filling my life with all this other stuff, I've then struggled to drum up the appetite to go to him. And so once again, not out of some heavy moral guilt thing, but because I want to take him up on the dare to have the most joy I could possibly have, I'm going to say, well, no to this stuff. I'm going to save my appetite for him because he's ultimately going to be much more satisfying than anything else. Please hear that as not some killjoy going, oh, stop doing bad things, do more good things, read your Bible, pray every day. That couldn't be further from what this life is about. God is saying, I am more desirable, more satisfying. And you know what? People who are enjoying God are much nicer to be around, aren't they? Because here's what it overflows into. It overflows into love for other people that doesn't require anything back. When I'm truly enjoying God, and I've been spending the last six weeks and a bit, seven weeks, just praying this prayer all the time, God, in this moment, how can I enjoy you more? God, in this moment, how can I enjoy you more? What an incredible prayer to pray. I've discovered in moments of greatest pain, I've enjoyed praying that prayer the most. Because in moments of pain and doubt and people hurting you or confusing you or something, there are opportunities to enjoy God in incredible ways that you'll never get in good times. And I know for an absolute scientific fact that I am nicer to be around. I love better when I'm enjoying God, when I'm finding Him satisfying, because I don't have to grip the people in my life and say, satisfy me. And not only do you love better, you exercise your gifts, you improve the city, you impact your community, all of that stuff in much better ways when it's coming out of the overflow of enjoying God, because you don't end up, you know that person who does a lot of good, and makes you feel guilty and inadequate around them. But the person who's going, no, I just enjoy God so much, and I just enjoy meeting the needs of others and introducing them to Him, and I just do this good stuff. I just love mercy, like Micah said. I just love to do this. You don't feel insecure or not enough around that kind of person. You don't feel guilt from that kind of person. You just go, wow, that's an inspiring way to live. What can I do? So this church will make Durban better, will love people better, will exercise its gifts better, will glorify God better if we could all just take our happiness much more seriously and find Him more satisfying. This city deserves churches full of people who are addicted to God, who are hedonists, taking their desires and riding them all the way into the presence of God, who are not apologizing for their desires or feeling guilty about them or using God as a means to an end. We just take those desires and go, I was designed to be satisfied by you and no one else, and so out of pure selfishness, I'm gonna chase you down, God. And then as I discover you and get you, 
your heart to start to work on my heart, then it's going to overflow into other supposedly selfish acts that are just good for everyone else. And that is what I'm just longing to be part of. That's what already we start to see dripping out of this church. That's why we've said that one of our key values is to enjoy God. Because all of the other stuff, if it doesn't come from there, can't last, won't really do much good, and isn't sustainable. This is where you're going to get your needs met. Let's pray. Father, if we've been dishonoring you by thinking of you as some killjoy, by thinking we have to endure doing churchy stuff, and thinking that you somehow owe us for our acts of devotion to you, if we have not seen you for who you are, if we've diminished your ability to satisfy us and gone looking elsewhere. And we have done this. We admit we have done this. We've tried to find satisfaction all over the place. I know I have. God, we repent of that. Not just because it's wrong, but because it's a waste. We know it's not going to satisfy us. And so we choose as a community to believe that you and you alone are enough. You will satisfy us. You are what our hearts are craving. Would you deal with the, the junk food, with the, with the appetites that we've gotten warped? And in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you just snap us out of that and help us to see that the desires of our hearts are ultimately satisfied when we delight in you? You are good. Always. You are worthy of longing for. And so we as, as a community want to, want to long for you and taste and see that you're good. And out of the overflow of that, enjoy doing the things that you're about. Enjoy meeting the needs of the people you love. Enjoy changing the city out of the overflow of absolute joy in you. And I pray that as we do that, you'll be glorified in this city for generations to come. Amen.